When we think of serial killers, the name Ronald Joseph Dominique doesn't necessarily ring any bells. But while Dominique, who was later given the moniker, the Bayou Strangler, never gained the sort of fame that Dahmer's and Gacy's of the world, his crimes were no less heinous. In fact, his body count makes him one of the most prolific killers in American history. 23 men died at Dominique's hands between 1997 and 2006. So how did a vindictive killer evade the police for nearly a decade? Dominique's success can be attributed to two factors. As a pizza delivery man, he maintained a low profile in his Louisiana town. No one suspected that Dominique, an overweight and balding 30-something, was capable of murder. Likewise, his victims, primarily gay African-American men, lived on the fringes of society. With the promise of paid sex, Dominique would lure these men into his car before raping and then strangling them to death. Only years later, after DNA evidence linked him to the crimes, was he finally put behind bars. Tonight, I'm going to tell you the story of the Bayou Strangler. And if this is your first time here, I'm your host and curator of all things strange and unexplained, Anthony Rossetti, and this is Not Another Horror Podcast. Now let's get into who Ronald was. Ronald Joseph Dominique was born on January 9, 1964, in Thibodeau, Louisiana. The younger of two children born to poor parents who lived in a trailer park located on the outskirts of the city. Because of his family's financial circumstances, Ronald lived out his childhood and adolescence in poverty, but still managed to attend the local Thibodeau High School from which he graduated in 1983. During his school years, Dominique was known for his crazy temper, lack of communication skills and weight problems, which coupled with low self-esteem and poor health made him the target of physical attacks by fellow students. Despite singing in the school choir, he was unpopular and considered a social outcast since he didn't play any sports didn't do drugs, or drink alcohol. Shortly before leaving school, Ronald discovered that he was gay and visited a local gay bar several times. However, some of his classmates had seen him there, resulting in harassment and accusations of homosexuality, which he vehemently denied. 
After leaving school, Dominique entered the Nicholas State University, where he studied computer science. However, he quickly lost interest and dropped out in the mid-1980s. On June 12, 1985, Ronald was arrested on charges of sexual harassment committed via telephone, for which he had to pay a $75 fine. Because of his lack of education, he was forced to engage in low-skilled labor for the following years, and due to his disciplinary issues, he was frequently fired. Unwilling to keep a steady job for a long period of time, he survived by living off relatives and other people's income, most notably his mother and later older sister, living with each of them for a time. On May 15, 1994, he was arrested for drunk driving, but was again only fined for the offense. Two years later, on August 25, 1996, Ronald was arrested for rape. Based on testimony by his neighbors, according to them, a partially dressed young man jumped out of the window of Ronald's sister's house, where he lived at the time, and claimed that Dominique then raped and attempted to kill said young man. Dominique was arrested and his bail set at a whopping 100000 But when the case was transferred to the court, the prosecutor's office was unable to locate the alleged victim or establish his identity, eventually resulting in the case dismissal in November of that year. On February 10th, 2002, Dominique was arrested yet again this time for assaulting a woman in Terrebonne Parish during a Mardi Gras festival. Ronald claimed that the woman had hit a baby stroller in one of the parking lots due to her dangerous driving, after which he began an argument with her, demanding an apology. After the woman apologized, he punched her in the face. He was charged, but the case was later dropped after an agreement was reached between him and the woman, with whom he had made amends. As a gay man, Dominique was unmarried and had no children, preferring to spend most of his free time in gay bars, often dressed as singer Patti LaBelle. I'm not sure if there was any blackface involved. But according to locals, the impersonation was pretty terrible. Due to various circumstances, he was unable to establish a serious relationship and was often looked down upon by the local gay community. His frustration of being on the outskirts of an already marginalized group would soon erupt in the form of murder. Ronald Dominique's first victim was a 19-year-old African-American boy named David Mitchell. Mitchell was last seen on July 13, 1997 in the St. Charles Parish. His body was discovered on Highway 3160 the following day. Mitchell had been sodomized and drowned. If you're wondering what makes a serial killer unique from a spree killer or mass murderer, that would be what is known as the cooling off period they have in between murders. Dominique didn't kill again until five months later, when he raped and murdered Gary Pierre on December 14th in St. Charles Parish. It was the Pierre murder 
the second victim in which Dominique keeps a consistent MO, a killing signature, if you will, that we will see in the rest of his victims. Recall that he drowned his victim in his first murder, however, the remaining victims will mostly experience death by asphyxiation due to neck compression. Having a consistent MO can help police link murders, letting them know they have a serial killer on their hands. Dominique's third victim was Larry Ranson and was killed seven months after the second body was discovered. With Ranson being 38 years old, Dominique showed he doesn't have a specific age range as long as they were black men. Ranson was the first victim also subjected to bondage by Dominique. Dominique's little known but staggering murder spree is examined in Fred Ronson's book, The Bayou Strangler. The portion I'm about to read you describes the fourth murder of Oliver LeBlanc, a man he picks up at a gay bar and introduces one of the detectives who bought Dominique to justice. He'd had enough, and had been forced to put up with too much to stop there. The ridicule, the stone glances from his family, and now just thinking someone was about to violate him again, it made him want, finally, to do something about it. It was an intoxicating combination of fear and retribution, and he had prepared for such an eventuality. Reaching down to the floorboards, he felt the cold metal of the tire iron in his strong hand. He brought it up quickly and slammed it into the side of Oliver LeBlanc's head. He brought up the iron and hit him again as the smaller man's brain began leaking out blood inside his cranium. The struggle seeped out of him. His limbs stopped pushing, then twitched, finally going slack. Doctors call this a concussion, unless LeBanks was operated on immediately. The twin concussions he had sustained when the tire iron impacted his head would soon kill him. Dominique showed no mercy. He got up on top of LeBanks and began to choke him with his large hands. Already unconscious from the blows, LeBanks started twitching again, and then Dominique heard the death rattle the last gasp of the life that he had just violated. He took off his belt, wrapped it around the now unmoving figure. Putting his weight on top of him again, Dominique pulled the belt tight so it bit into the bank's skin. After a while, Dominique wasn't sure how long it was. He realized the guy was once and for all not breathing anymore. He wasn't coming back. He threw open the back door and jumped out of the station wagon into the deserted street. Dominique had killed before. He knew what he had to do. He got into the driver's seat, fished his keys out of his pocket, plunged the key into the ignition, and started up the car. Dominique began driving down dark streets, not really knowing where he was, looking for the right place to dump the body. He'd know when he saw it. He wound up driving into Kenner, the oldest city in Jefferson Parish, established in 1855 
Back then, the place was known by its French name, Cain's Brûlés, or Burnt Cane Fields. It was a landmark on the banks of the Mississippi River. The family of its founder, William Kenner, owned many of the area's larger plantations and farms. Everything changed in 1915 when a commuter rail line was established from Kenner to New Orleans, bringing in manufacturing that in turn brought in new roads and the airports. A full-fledged suburb, Kenner was connected to the Big Easy by Interstate 10, the major east-west interstate in the southern United States. Interstate 10 goes all the way from Jacksonville, Florida, on the Atlantic Ocean across the southwestern United States, terminating at Santa Monica on the Pacific Ocean in California. A few miles north of the busy New Orleans International Airport, Dominique turned his tan Malibu wagon south and took a left down airport road as he circled the airport looking for a location that he would know instinctively was right. The overhead jets had a bird-eyes view of his travels. Too many people, too many cars. The place was just too active. What had he been thinking? No place to do it that wouldn't be easily found. But that was part of the kick for Dominique. It couldn't be too easy. He wanted the body to be found. Had he not, he could have easily just gone over a bridge and dumped it into some dark waters. Or he could have driven to a nearby bayou and let the alligators take care of things neatly and tastefully without leaving a trace for a forensic specialist to work with. It just wouldn't scratch that itch inside him if he did that. What fun would it be? What pleasure it would give him when the body was found. The body had to be found. Dominique was one of those people who loved Christmas all year round. He kept Christmas decorations up full time in his trailer. But this wasn't the holiday season. Those lights meant people were around, people who might see him and what he was doing, what he had done. Again, too busy, too many people driving in and out. No, that wouldn't do. And he kept going. He passed food management and construction offices. Airline Drive is a host to a variety of businesses that cater to the airline traveler going through New Orleans. After a few miles, Airline Drive passed into the town of Maturi. Dominique saw Providence Memorial Park Cemetery on his right, where Mahalia Jackson, the celebrated gospel singer, had been laid to rest, but he was hardly into gospel. Leaving Mahalia and the cemetery behind him, he continued east towards New Orleans, still on Airline Drive, passing the fast food and chain restaurants gas stations and strip malls that dotted the highway. Passing Little Farms Avenue, he approached Dickory Avenue, just past the light at the intersection of Dickory Avenue and the end of the Earhart Expressway was a speed trap. 
Waiting for the speeders at the bottom of the elevated highway was Louisiana State Trooper Cal Calhoun. His job was to catch and ticket speeders who would not see his car hidden in a parking lot at the bottom of the exit ramp. Obeying the speed limit as he always did, Dominique drove right past the cop. Dickery Avenue rose as it got to a 6,000 block of Stable Drive before hitting the railroad tracks. Below Stable was a feeder road into Zephyr Fields, a quarter of a mile east where the AAA New Orleans Zephyr's minor league team played its home games. There was nothing special about the overpass except it was conveniently there, secluded, but accessible to passerby, perfect for dumping a body. The tan Malibu wagon tooled down Stable Drive, deserted at this hour. Dominique pulled the wagon to the side of the road, hopped out, went around to the passenger side door, and threw it open. Pulling LeBanc's corpse by the belt, still wrapped around his neck, he struggled until he had it fully out under the overpass. Then he let it go. The body plunked down on the sand, face down, cutting back quickly to the station wagon. Dominique closed the rear passenger side door which made a hollow sound in the empty darkness. Getting back behind the wheel, he turned the ignition on and put the car into drive. A moment later, Ronald J. Dominique was well away, driving the few blocks north to Airline Drive. This time, he didn't circle the airport but kept going. Ten miles down the road, he saw the interstate looming overhead. Interstate 310 is a freeway linking US 90 and Southern Louisiana to Interstate 10 in New Orleans. He turned right up the ramp, then took a left and headed southwest. In seven miles, the road climbed higher and passed over the Mississippi River, providing Dominique with a great view of the big muddy flowing below him. On the other side, the road passed over West Bank Bridge Park and curved south. In front of him were two signs. The one for the right lane said 90 West Huma, while the one for the left 90 East Bouillette, New Orleans. Dominique followed the sign to Bouillette at the southern end of the roadway. He turned north on the old Spanish trail, pulling off at the trailer park where he lived. Trailers were everywhere. Some were set on wooden foundations, some on concrete, some had gardens in front, and some were really modular homes. The one thing they had in common, anonymity. The next day, a passerby saw the body below the freeway ramp and called the police. Because the corpse had been dumped in Jefferson Parish, the lead homicide investigator from the sheriff's office was summoned to the scene. If it shouldn't turn out that the victim was killed in, say, Terrebonne Parish, the latter would then assume venue. But for now, Jefferson was up at bat. This guy is sloppy, thought Dennis Thornton. Otherwise, how could we find a fresh body? Dressed like a banker in charcoal gray suit, blue tie, and wing-tipped shoes, Detective Lieutenant Dennis Thornton bent over and examined the partially clothed body of the man he would eventually identify 
as Oliver LeBanks. Murder was a much more frequent occurrence in Louisiana than in other places, and therefore not unusual. Louisiana, and in particular the New Orleans area, has the highest per capita homicide rate in the country. Sorting through the similarities and differences between so many homicides can be a daunting task. Linkage. It was all about linkage in serial killer cases. Do that and you save lives. Link homicides to the same perpetrator and concentrate your resources there. It was a clock, ticking away the life seconds of the next victims. Thornton looked up at the jets flying overhead. The airport was nearby. Did the killer live near the airport, he wondered. Yes, he did, but what Thornton didn't know was that the killer was closer than anyone realized, and LeBanks had not been his first victim. The first had been David Mitchell, a 19-year-old African-American. Dominique's neck struck exactly five months later, in the day again close to home, Gary Pierre. Serial killers can change patterns. Sometimes they have a cooling off period between crimes. Dominique seemed to be one of those consistent as pattern, at least for the moment. Dominique once again took a vacation from killing, this time for seven months, then Larry Ranson showed up. Because the bodies had been dumped close to one another on the same road, the police in St. Charles suspected one killer, but the culprit had left nothing behind for the cops to work with. No fibers, no prints, no hair, the lack of DNA, plus the anal bruising of the victims, made the cops figure he was using a condom. They sorted through the usual list of parolees with charges of sexual abuse of one sort or another in their files, but came up with nothing. What Southern Louisiana was unknowingly facing was a serial killer, and a successful one at that. Once a serial killer has been confirmed in a locality, the FBI is contacted and they make a profile of the killer. Their profiles are generally cookie cutter. The serial killer is white, poor, and doesn't have much of an education. While that profile would certainly fit Dominique, it also fit a couple million other guys in Louisiana. It would be of no practical use. Solving a serial killing means thinking outside the box once in a while. A detective will get assigned to investigate with no matter where the trail leads, no matter how long it takes, the detective decides to dedicate part of his life to tracking down a murderer who had the audacity to kill in his parish. Dominique didn't know it, but he had made an enemy of Dennis Thornton. Evidence markers were set up near tire imprints and the soft sand where LeBanks' body had been dumped. There was no evidence of a murder weapon examining the body. Thornton saw that the victim had been bludgeoned on one side of the head. The killer had left the pants of the victim down below his knees. His shirt was off. Solving a serial killing means thinking outside the box. Thornton wore surgical gloves to prevent contamination. Not that he was afraid the dead man could contaminate him. It was the other way around. The idea was that the detective bring nothing to the scene, including his own fingerprints. 
that could contaminate the evidence of Thornton picked up the wrist and noted the ligature of binding marks. It looked like the guy's wrists had been tied together. Thornton was going to be very interested in what the coroner had to say about them. As the morgue attendants moved in with the bags, tarps, and collapsible table that informed the tools of their trade, Thornton stepped back to allow them to do their job. You can never be sure how wrists are tied together until the coroner weighs in, and details like the pants around the victim's ankles could turn out to be the killer's signature behavior. Now guys, that was from the book Fred Rossin's The Bayou Strangler. If you want to hear more about every murder in full detail, then I really suggest you check out that book. It's a pretty good read. Now, between October 1998 and August 1999, Ronald committed five more murders in Jefferson Parish. In October 1998, he met a 16-year-old Joseph Brown in Kenner, and lured him to his truck to allegedly buy crack cocaine. After sharing it together, Dominique attacked the teenager, beating him several times on the head with a blunt object, and then strangling him with a plastic bag. Brown, who had been brought up by his grandmother, had recently been put on probation after serving a sentence for drug possession and distribution. A month later, 18-year-old Bruce Williams fell victim to Dominique in a similar manner. In May 1999, Ronald was cruising around Kenner when he came across 21-year-old Manuel Reed, who offered to sell him drugs. Agreeing to the offer, Dominique led him into his truck where he raped and then strangled Reed, later dumping his corpse into a dumpster in the city's industrial zone about a mile from where Brown's body was found. Similar to LeBanks, semen traces were found which belonged to an unknown male. A month later, Dominique killed 21-year-old Angel Mahay, a hobo, with past convictions for drug possession. At first, the killer tried to dump his corpse in a garbage container, but after discovering that it was full, he discarded it on the street. After examining the corpse, the coroner concluded that the victim had recently used drugs and that he had been tied up with a rope prior to his untimely death. While investigating the recent deaths, law enforcement established that Mahay, Brown, and Pierre all knew and lived in close proximity to each other. In late August, Dominique met 34-year-old drug addict Mitchell Johnson. Offering him drugs in exchange for sexual favors, he then took Johnson to the forest outside Metairie where he tied, raped, and strangled him. Mitchell's full new body was discovered on September 1st with indications that his killer had tied him up. In January 2000, Dominique claimed another victim, 23-year-old Michael Vincent. In early October, he became closely associated with 20-year-old Kenneth Randolph Jr., a thrice-prosecuted child molester who lived near him in the trailer park. Upon learning of his increased sex drive, Dominique lured Randolph into his trailer, telling him that a girl wanted to have sex with him there, and then attacked him, tying, raping, and finally strangling him 
The criminal then took the body to a field outside the city, where the partially naked remains with signs of bondage were found. On October 12, 2002, in the late evening, Dominique met 26-year-old Anoka Jones, a financially strained petty criminal on the streets in Homa. He attacked Jones, after which he tied up, raped, and strangled him. Dominique later dumped his body under a highway overpass where it was discovered several hours later. During this period, Ronald and his sister moved to rural Bayou Blue, an unincorporated community of around 32,000 people, most of whom were Cajuns. There he found a job as a specialist who checked electricity levels at a local power supply, thanks to which he was allowed to periodically travel the remote areas of the city. Around this time, Ronald Dominique killed 19-year-old Detrail Woods, dumping both him and his bicycle in a reed field outside the city. Woods' decomposed and partially naked body remained undiscovered until May 24, 2003. The cause of death was deemed as asphyxiation. However, until Dominique's arrest, it was considered to be accidental in nature, since the victim was known to suffer from asthma. In October 2004, Dominique met 46-year-old Larry Matthews, a drug addict who also dealt drugs on the side. He lured him to the house with the promise of some drugs, but during the process, Matthew lost consciousness due to an overdose, after which Ronald raped and strangled him. He later dumped his body 20 miles away from the crime scene. At the time of his disappearance, nobody reported Matthews as missing. Since he was homeless and his identity later had to be established via fingerprints, the serial killer's next victim would become 21-year-old Michael Barnett, whose body was found on October 24, 2004, the first white male switching up Dominique's victim profile. The next murder was committed in February 2005, with the victim being 22-year-old Leon Lorette, a rebellious alcoholic vagrant who had to live with friends and acquaintances due to his bombastic behavior. It later turned out that he had lived with two victims, Barnett and Anoka, with whom he was on friendly terms. For some time, Lorette was even considered the prime suspect in Jones' murder as he was the last person to see him prior to the former's disappearance. Two months later, in April, Dominique met 31-year-old August Watkins, a homeless man who he lured to his truck with promises of an overnight stay. After Watkins ended up in his trailer, Dominique gave him alcohol and offered him to have sex with his supposed female acquaintance before tying up, raping, and strangling the victim. After August Watkins' corpse was found, police began to consider for the first time that a serial offender was committing killings in both Kenner and Huma since the killers in both areas demonstrated a strikingly similar modus operandi. Thanks to this, the case was handed over to the FBI. A few days after killing Watkins, Ronald killed his second white male, 23-year-old Kurt Cunningham in a similar fashion. That same summer, he repeated his actions twice, killing 28-year-old Alonzo Hogan in St. Charles Parish and 17-year-old Wayne Smith in Terrebonne Parish, luring them both under the pretense of them having sex with one of his female friends. 
Unlike the previous victims, Hogan and Smith had no prior criminal convictions and weren't known to use drugs. Hogan had been raped by Dominique's pre-mortem, while no traces of semen were found on Smith's corpse since his body had been disposed of in a canal, where it was severely decomposed only a few days later. The last confirmed victim was 27-year-old Christopher Stutterfield. Like most of Dominique's victims, Stutterfield had an extensive criminal dossier, having been prosecuted for theft, drug possession, assisting in juvenile delinquency, violation of public order, and aggravated assault, for which he served a two-year prison sentence and was later left without a fixed abode. A bisexual, he had met Ronald in the summer of 2006, after which the two began dating. On October 14th, while on a date together in Iberville Parish, Dominique hit Christopher on the head with a heavy object, causing him to lose consciousness. After finding Sutterfield's body, police interviewed relatives, friends and acquaintances, all of whom confirmed they had last seen him with a man driving a black SUV, but were unable to describe the companion's appearance. Now if you're wondering how did he get caught, well, in November 2006, Ronald Dominique came under police suspicion after Ricky Wallace, the resident of Bayou Blue, contacted the police claiming that the former had lured him to his trailer in mid-2006 with an offer to share drugs and have sex with a girl. After Wallace entered the trailer according to his testimony, Ronald tried to convince him that his girlfriend enjoyed bondage, offering to tie Wallace up. Ricky refused and soon after he was allowed to leave. His testimony was questioned at first because he was a drug addict and had repeatedly lied in the past, but nevertheless, Dominique was detained and interrogated by the police. While he was held at the station, he was asked to donate a blood sample, to which he agreed. Over the next week, DNA testing matched Dominique's profile with that of the elusive killer who had left behind semen traces on the bodies of Oliver LeBanks and Manuel Reed, resulting in an arrest warrant. And on December 1st, 2006, Ronald was arrested at a homeless shelter. After said arrest, he told the police that he knew it was a matter of time before he was captured, and so he moved out of his sister's house in order not to inconvenience her. How thoughtful. Once at the police station where he faced murder charges, Dominique expressed his desire to cooperate with investigators, readily confessing to 23 murders, describing them in details only known to the officers. As a result, new charges were brought against him, but despite his confession, he refused to admit guilt in the attacks. Ronald stated that most of the victims, due to their addictions and other factors, voluntarily agreed to be tied, handcuffed, and treated in similar manners. Since they wanted to earn money, if the potential victim refused to do so, he let them go without harming them. Concerning motive, Dominic claimed that he wanted to get rid of any witnesses, as he was unwilling to serve a prison sentence again. According to him, after his 1996 arrest for the rape charges, he was strongly impacted, allegedly remaining in constantly negative emotional state, and even began to show symptoms of a mental disorder. Poor him. Now your next question might be, how did he get away with it for so long? Well, 
The demographics of murder victims in the United States and Canada contribute to how victims' cases are investigated by police. To understand why this occurs, we must first understand the statistics of murder in these regions. Did you know in the United States, 77.8% of murder victims are male, while 22% are female. In Canada, 69.8% of murder victims are male and 30% are female. So, technically, as a female, you would be safer in America than in Canada. Numbers are wild, right? In the United States, 57% of gun homicide victims were black, 40% white or Hispanic. 1.35% were Asian. 0.98% were of unknown race, and 0.48% were indigenous American. In the United States, 61.5% of non-gun homicide victims were white or Hispanic. 32% were black, 2.29% were Asian, and 1.89% were of unknown race, and 1.43% were indigenous. Canada does not collect the racial data of crime victims, including homicide victims. In the United States, 72.6% of victims of anti-LGBT plus some size were gay men. 4.4% of victims were lesbian. 1.8% were bisexual. 13.3% were transgender. And 8% were heterosexual. Of hate crimes reported in the United States, 47% were racially motivated, with 72% of those murders being against African Americans. 20.8% were motivated by sexual orientation, with 57.8% against gay men, and 18.2% were motivated by religion. With 62.2% of these crimes being against Jewish people. And here's another fun number for you. A total of 38.4% of murders go unsolved and unpunished in America. And the number also shifts on demographics. In the United States, 53% of black murders go unsolved, and 37% of white murders go unsolved. In Canada, 47% of missing or murdered indigenous females have not had their cases solved. In the United States, between 1970 and 1979, only 16% of sex workers Murders were solved despite sex workers making up 32% of female serial homicide victims. So as you can see, the perceived value of a human life in the eyes of the law is based on a variety of factors, particularly socioeconomic and societal status. For example, a sex worker addicted to drugs who has little money has less value than a middle-class school teacher with no criminal record. Murders or disappearances of those with the most value have higher case clearance rate numbers. In comparison, cases involving individuals with less value have lower rates of being resolved. Individuals with less value are called the less dead because less attention is paid to their murders or disappearances, particularly by investigators. This case was an interesting one, and I suggest buying the book for even more details. I know I said it before, but it was a really good book. I enjoyed reading it, and I enjoyed reading that portion to you. 
You never know who is lurking around the corner or in your little small town. That wraps up our show for tonight. Stay safe, stay sane, and see you guys next week.